This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. It's pretty undeniable that our society has a number of problems. And while it's virtually impossible to nail down the causation, let alone the solution to any number of them, I think there's one thing that we can probably say plays a role in a good amount of the issues that we face today, and that's illiteracy. Now, notice I didn't say illiteracy. I'm not talking about people who can't read. I'm talking about people who are fully able to read yet they choose not to. What does this have to do with fly fishing? Well, just bear with me for a moment. Now, I'm not advocating that the uh, classic literature that was taught really up until um, about this generation is the only kind of stuff that people should read, that um, Orwell and Dickens and uh, the like is necessary to be a well-rounded human being. And while that literature is important for Western civilization and important for culture and important for just understanding a lot of, of, of what we do and how we think, underneath all of that is the time, energy, and effort that goes into reading what at times might be difficult literature. So again, what does that have to do with fly fishing? Well, I think there's an attention span issue. When we talk about fly fishing and we approach a small stream, a large river, or a uh, coastline, we talk about reading the water. And in the same manner that reading a book might be distasteful to somebody because it takes energy and it takes time and it, it, it involves kind of having to work through difficult things that we might not be super familiar with, maybe even asking questions, maybe doing it over and over and over again before we finally understand it. Reading water can have that same distasteful perspective to somebody who says, I can catch fish this way. Why would I do it another way? 
And I'll straight up say that if you're catching fish and you're happy with how you're catching fish, then don't mess with what you've got. If what you have makes you happy, then don't alter it in the slightest. Keep doing it. That's great. But for a lot of people, catching more fish, catching larger fish, catching different fish than the other ones you're already catching is on the priority list. And so what we're going to talk about today is reading water in kind of new, different, and deeper ways. We're not reading water like social media. We're not reading water like it's a Twitter feed where you're just going for the real flashy headline kind of things. You're going deeper and realizing that there's more nuance when you get behind a tweet length uh, a sentence or you get behind a headline. But in long form, just as in long form literature, there's a lot of depth. Um, when you take time to read the water and analyze the water in a richer, more holistic manner, you have access to fish that you didn't have access to, and you have access to fishing opportunities that you might not have realized were right in front of you. So <clears throat> this is really pertinent if you fish one particular river. I honestly don't feel like changing anyone's minds. If they have one river that they love to fish, then this is a perfect kind of thing for you to apply. Similarly, if you can only fish one river, whether it has to do with it being a proximity issue or um, you just don't feel particularly compelled to go fish somewhere else, if you're fishing one place, you can still be good. You can still be doing a good thing. And if anything, I know that I have grown as a fly fisher when I have been fishing the same stream multiple times a week, multiple weeks a month, multiple months out of a year, rather than bouncing around trying something new. Still, what I'm about to talk about is very, very applicable uh, for, for somebody in that situation. Here's kind of how I started um, thinking about reading the water in a more um, robust, deeper manner. A buddy and I were fly fishing on a mountain stream, um, catching uh, wild um, rainbows and brookies um, in the Appalachians, and he was fishing the same pool. And he was fishing it and fishing it and fishing it. And he wasn't moving. And as I got closer and closer, I realized that I was either going to have to leapfrog him, which wasn't going to be super easy based on the topography and the stream. So I was kind of just waiting for him to stop so we could go through the pool to move upstream together. But he wasn't stopping. He kept fishing the same pool. And we've all been there where we drift through the deep water. We switch flies. We switch flies again. And we, we try to get the fish that we know is there when there probably isn't even a fish there. And so I start slowing down my fishing and I start casting behind every rock systematically, left stream bank to right stream bank. I hadn't been doing that great and it was the middle of summer and the water was kind of shallow and so it probably wasn't the best time to be fishing anyway. But what I started figuring out was that there was fish hiding behind every rock in this stream. Now, I'm not saying every rock held a fish behind it. I'm saying that rocks that were really big had fish behind them. Rocks that were little had fish behind them. Little runs in between rocks that were no bigger than my wrist had fish in them. Bigger stretches had fish in them. I was blown away. I was probably, I was in college, so I was maybe, you know, 20, 21, and instantaneously I realized for the past five, six, seven years that I've been fly fishing, I have probably missed out on hundreds, if not thousands of trout because I was targeting those big highlight spots in rivers. 
I was targeting the overhanging branch. I was targeting the plunge pool. I was targeting the undercut bank. I was targeting the big, deep riffle on the side of the river. There was fish everywhere. And I think that's an important thing to remember. If you have the uh, luxury of living next to a stream that is even moderately healthy, part of a healthy ecosystem, those food sources are going to be spread throughout that entire creek. There's going to be um, different types of macroinvertebrates that live in the shallow, gravelly water that that compared to what lives in the deeper water that might have a little bit more sediment. And the fish are going to be keying in on all of it based upon their particular mood, the, their size, their life cycle, um, where they are in the seasons. So those fish are going to move up and down uh, based on where that food is. And if that food's everywhere, those fish are going to be moving everywhere. Oftentimes, though, we step right on top of the spots that hold fish because we're looking at the spots that we want to hold fish, which very may well hold fish. We just shouldn't compromise some of those other spots to uh, get to the ones that are the highlighted spots. All right, so here's an example. If you can imagine a pool in your mind, so a big, long stretch of water, left is slack water on the right, so you're looking upstream, left is slack water, right is a riffle, and you catch fish out of that riffle. You stand the slack water, and you catch fish out of the riffle, and you're used to it, and you're used to using normal techniques, so drifting a nymph, floating a dry fly, and you usually catch a couple of fish, but you are convinced there's more fish in there. What do you do? Well, you could always completely switch your technique, switch over to a big eight inch articulated streamer and drag it through that water. And you very well may catch a big fish out of that spot. How many fish in there are going to be going for that sort of presentation? Probably not a lot, but you you might get into one. But the next time you go back, are you necessarily going to get a fish doing that? Probably not. You could continue to uh, up your nymph game by spending more time uh, figuring out how to detect strikes. So you're still fishing that riffle. You're still picking up a couple fish. Maybe you pick up, you know, instead of two fish every time you go through, now you're catching three fish. That's great. And if you're content doing that, awesome. Taking it one step further, you could, you know, mess with your rig, figure out how to tie new nymph rigs, how to figure out which flies should be at the point, which flies um, should be closer to the cider, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All that to say is there's ways that you can keep doing the same thing that you're already doing, fishing the same water you're already fishing, and can get into fish. And oftentimes, that's what most tips and tricks are about. What I'm saying is you're looking upstream, all that slack water on the left, there may very well be fish over there that you could be targeting. And here's how you do that. Here's how you approach kind of the secondary water. First of all, you have a seam between the faster moving water on your right and the slower moving water on your left. That seam is going to hold fish. And the cool thing about the seam and the cool thing about fishing the slack water is that if you fish it first, that uh, quicker water and the um, broken water is going to hide you, your line, your leader, your fly, any mending that you do, any fish that you catch from those fish that are sitting in the riffle if that makes sense. Basically, the fish that are in the riffles, the fish that are in the broken water, the faster water, are not going to have a clear view of you fishing into the slower water. Now, is that always true? Does that mean that you have complete carte blanche and you can splash around and make all sorts of noise and do all sorts of stuff? No, that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that you have a little bit more flexibility if you fish 
that slower water first. And even if it is the seam, it's the water just on the left-hand side of, of the, um, the faster water. But then there can be fish that can be sitting potentially in a deeper hole in the slower water. A lot of times we focus so much on that you know, pretty, um, typical water that we don't even know what we're missing. Might there be a uh, rock that has a great holding lie for a fish? There could be an entire current bringing food to the bottom of that slower water that we're totally unaware of. But if we never fish it, we'll never know. And so that's kind of a, a, um, a quick primer on approaching the uh, secondary runs within one particular spot. Now, another example of that would be in a small mountain stream. Um, you go to a small mountain stream, what does everybody want to fish? They want to fish the plunge pool. So you have, let's just say, again, you're staying at the tail out of the pool. You have maybe uh, 20 feet between you and a waterfall. Maybe it's six feet wide, three feet high. It's not big, but that, you know, if it plunges down into five feet of water or something like that, that is an incredibly attractive spot where in our minds, we're just thinking there's a fat, you know, uh, eight, nine, 10 inch brook trout or, or cutthroat trout in there. And so what do we do? We cast immediately right into the middle of that pool or right into where that uh, water is spilling over and creating all that froth. Well, there are some pools that are like that, where it's just one waterfall into a plunge pool. But most streams aren't um, you know, cookie cutter and they aren't super clean like that. So chances are, if you think of one of your favorite pools from your favorite small mountain streams, you can picture to the left or to the right of that waterfall, there's probably another little spillover. And it might only be two feet wide, and it might only be two feet high. But what you essentially get is the same sort of feeding lie coming into the pool that you're standing in, where fish can find refuge from the current and from predators, which is always what they're looking for. You know, fish are just trying to stay alive, which means eating, which means um, not getting eaten, and which means making baby fish. And they wanna do that with the least amount of energy possible. And so hydrologically speaking, a waterfall it's a lot of, of water coming over, creating a huge current, um, bringing food in front of those fish. But at the same time, what it's also doing is creating pockets of water that is relatively still. So those fish are able to sit nose into the um, fast water, yet not have to expend a lot of energy by using their fins and using their tails and so on and so forth. I mean, science, it's boring, but it's my life. It really isn't my life. I'm not a scientist, but it's just you know basic hydrology and, and, and fish preservation, for lack of a better term. So all that to say, that fish is going to be able to get the same things out of that small two-foot waterfall on the right as they would with that giant waterfall kind of in the center of the stream. Moreover, if you've ever seen underwater footage from mountain streams, it is amazing how many fish can stack into that kind of still water right at the base of a plunge pool. And there'll be, you know, a dozen brookies, four, six, eight, ten inches down there. Um, but that smaller spot might only have enough room for a couple of fish. And fish aren't dumb. I mean, they're not smart either. But whatever smart means in, in fish terms, smart usually comes with age, and with age comes size. We're not all about catching the biggest fish, but we're also not going to turn away that opportunity. So by fishing that secondary spot, that smaller plunge, you have the opportunity to get into potentially a fish that might be bigger because it doesn't have as much competition. It's bullied its way into that spot. 
Is this a tried and true rule? No, but it's more proverbial. It's just something to think about something to kind of change the way you think. And you also get all of those same benefits that I talked about with our first um, illustration with the slack water on the left, the fast water on the right. You cast to that smaller waterfall, smaller plunge first, you're probably going to be able to make a very untainted presentation to the larger waterfall because the more water's coming, there's more turbidity, there's more foam getting kicked up, those fish might be deeper, so you have a lot more cover if you fish the first one, the smaller one first, and then move on to the bigger one. That is to say, you probably won't spoil your presentation to the second set of fish. You may even be able to pull both fish out of both spots if, if you catch my drift. So what are some other kind of things to look for as you're reading the water with a little bit more um, depth? Well, I would say the first thing, and I've mentioned this before, is look at your water when it's low. Whether it's a huge tailwater and there's a drawdown, or it's a big river and there is a uh, low water season, just you know a drought or just hasn't rained in a while, take notice of the underwater um, structure. Um, there might not be the giant boulders that you can see either when the water's high and you're in the water and there's a boulder you can see, or it's actually protruding from the water even in high water. It might not be that, but you might see um, how there are some natural uh, ditches in the water. Um, where does the water go when the water is low? Um, that was a completely unintentional um, bit of poetry there. But that's something to think about because that's probably where the water goes when the water is high. It's not probably where it goes. It is where it goes. You have these channels within rivers. There's always one major channel, and then there's probably multiple smaller channels. There's a... a the current braids and moves. And so those bits of water that are still submerged in lower water is probably where the majority of the current is flowing. And those create the spots where there might be seams on either side, completely invisible in higher water. But you can fish those seams when the water comes back up and the water is fishable again. And you're going to be able to get into fish that you probably were just walking over to get to that big boulder in the middle, to get to that drop off. Um, but you'd be so surprised where fish hold. Another spot that's worth considering is vertical structure. So um, you're talking about a big boulder on the stream bank or a sharp cliff or um, trees that they're tall. They're, their branches aren't overhanging like we think of typical overhanging branches, you know, like a, a branch that's only a couple feet off the water, but these are just a, a grove of trees, a line of, of, of pines or aspens or something like that, but they're right up against the stream bank, not necessarily creating a um, an undercut bank. It's just there's a vertical surface that's perpendicular to the water. Why is this important to fish? Well, again, they're looking for safety. They're looking for security. And in those vertical structures, I often find that there's the illusion of safety for fish. Now, sometimes that's real, that that structure casts a shadow for a good part of the day, and a shadow isn't as good as real cover, but in as much as a shadow obscures our ability to detect fish, the same thing is true of, of virtually all other terrestrial predators um, or, or aerial predators like birds. They're going to struggle just like we do to see fish in the shadows. So fish will go to places like that. They also get a little bit of thermal refuge, um, especially if that is a larger shadow that's there for a longer part of the day. So this is um, 
obviously only going to be closer to the banks or it's going to be on smaller streams. But this is a, it could be super shallow water, ankle deep water, but you might find fish holding in those spots because they're getting at least the perception of the kind of cover they're looking for. The last thing is totally unrelated to what you can see. It's what you can feel. Um, especially in the summer months, take notice of where the water feels cooler. It might be because there was some sort of thermal protection upstream. It could be a spring seep or a spring source where you have a big influx of colder water. It could even be that a um, tributary that looks like frog water is actually colder water for whatever reason. Once you're able to key in on those things, again, not to take advantage of fish that are stressed, but even uh, in normal conditions, fish will seek out that water because colder water is generally more oxygenated and it's better for um, the fish and for their food sources generally. So uh, those are just a couple of examples, but really uh, what I'd like to communicate is consider the diversity of opportunities that exist even within the streams that you feel like you're already very familiar with. It can be very helpful on putting you on fish you haven't seen before, fish you haven't fished to before, and it can increase the amount of fish that you catch. Not that it's all about numbers, but because it's about becoming a more well-rounded fly fisher. This is also beneficial when you come to a new stream that might not have the same kind of water that you're used to. As you practice reading the water on a creek or a river or a shoreline that you are familiar with, then you know kind of how the fish behave and interact and what your skill set is and how it relates to those things. When you go somewhere new, you have a better tool set that you're able to put into employ to uh, figure out how to access those fish uh, that you have never seen before. So think about it. Hopefully give it a shot. Let me know what you think. I'll also put a link to a post that was um, uh, got a little bit of traction last year called these spots are better than the spots you fish same thing not giving explicit fish here fish here fish here more of this is how to retrain your eyes to think of spots that could be different from the ones that you already fish this week on castingcross.com uh, the two articles were mondays called gumption and moxie and fat trout it's a story about a ill-fated adventure to a private trout fishery um, apologies if the uh, proprietor of the former location is listening. Wednesdays was called Throwback Gear Review, Orvis T3. Um, as I mentioned on the article, I review gear I fish with for a day, a week, a month. I think it's awesome. I love it. I talked about that a couple of podcasts ago, how I, that's just part of what I do for casting across, and I just love doing it. But then I got thinking, why don't I write about a piece of gear I've had for almost 20 years? So the Orvis T3 was a rod that I fell in love with when I first casted it, and it's probably still my go-to rod for most trial fishing situations. So go ahead and give that a review. Um, if you fish that rod, maybe you'll find some uh, similarities to my experiences also. This week, I'm recommending you check out Lilia's Lines of Love. If you go to risenfly.com, and risenfly is a... Um, company I've talked about quite a bit on the podcast and the website. You go to Lilia's Lines of Love on top and it takes you to a page where you can order a bracelet for men, women, and kids made out of recycled fly line. Now I know this is not a unique concept within fly fishing, but a couple of cool things about Lilia's Lines of Love through Risen Fly Fishing. The first is that they're only $10. The second is that they're made by a charming young lady, um, one of the daughters of the owner of Risen Fly Fishing. 
And out of every bracelet sold, $2.50 goes towards a donation to the Pittsburgh Children's Hospital. Um, and they've $2.50 doesn't sound like a lot, but they've done a lot of these and have donated quite a bit to uh, the kids in the hospital. Um, also, if you contribute by sending your old fly line in, you get a $10 voucher to buy a fly line through Risen Fly Fishing. Um, this is really cool. This was uh, this little girl's idea um, to help out kids at the hospital. She'd already done a couple of benefits, and this one continues to be successful. So uh, check it out at risenfly.com. Check out Lilia's Lines of Love and either donate, buy, and uh, help support her and the kids that she is going to be helping. Thank you for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast in iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com where you'll find more info on this podcast and three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Mm-hmm.